This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by West Virginia University Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is So Much to be Angry About, Appalachian Movement Press and Radical DIY Publishing, 1969-1979, to by Sean Slifer. In a remarkable act of recovery, so much to be angry about conjures an influential but largely obscured strand in the nation's radical tradition. The movement printing presses and publishers of the late 1960s and 70s. More than a history, Sean Slifer's craft and activist-centered book positions the frontline politics of the Appalachian left within larger movements of the 1970s. So Much to be Angry About combines complete reproductions of five of Appalachian Movement Press's most engaging publications and an essay by Sean Slifer about his detective work resurrecting the press's fascinating history. So Much to be Angry About, Appalachian Movement Press and Radical DIY Publishing, 1969-1979, to by Sean Slifer, out now from West Virginia University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It's entirely clear that all meaningful progress is impossible without an organized working class, a working class organized into labor unions. Unfortunately, the labor movement has faced decades of devastating setbacks, losing millions of members thanks to a bipartisan toward towards neoliberalism, a coordinated corporate offensive against the New Deal settlement, and, most recently, the rise of apps like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, which use technology to mystify their actual achievement, which is the mass casualization of labor. All of that and more. This week's dig comes in two parts. This episode is an interview with labor journalist Alex Press and organizer Jonah Furman, a big-picture assessment of the state of the labor movement, how we got here, how we might move forward. I have also posted a second, shorter interview on the PRO Act with Jimmy Williams, the general vice president of the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The way forward is is not clear. We need labor law reform so that labor law supports workers organizing unions rather than the status quo labor law which helps bosses crush unions. In particular, we need the PRO Act, which would comprehensively rewrite labor law to make it easier to organize unions, to strike, and to win contracts. But we also need mass labor unrest and mass social unrest, and we need the two linked together to create the sort of political conditions that will force the U.S. Senate to pass the PRO Act. We certainly don't make history in conditions of our own choosing, but you can definitely help out. Last Sunday, DSA kicked off its PRO Act campaign, which links the fight for labor rights to winning transformative demands like the Green New Deal. We heard from Representative Jamal Bowman. How we doing? How we doing? How we doing? Looking good, sounding good, feeling good. Let's go DSA. Let's go past the PRO Act. Let's go end the filibuster. Let's go unionize every worker in this country. Let's unionize every worker across the world. Let's get to net zero carbon emissions in the next 10 years. We heard from Naomi Klein. 
because climate change itself is class war. And only a resurgent left, led by a mobilized and empowered and radicalized working class, can fight back. And from Association of Flight Attendants President Sarah Nelson. Mother Jones said in 1906, when she was fighting against child labor, the capitalists say there is no need of labor organizing. But the fact that they themselves are continually organizing shows their real beliefs. The capitalists are always organizing, and especially for the next crisis. And we are in crisis. The crisis is clear. Our world is burning from the Amazon to the Arctic. And in Texas, our friends and neighbors were freezing while Ted Cruz had headed off to Cancun. But he did something that he's never done before. He was shamed into changing his ticket to come back early because people did not let him off the hook. I want you to take that in for a minute because this is someone who wouldn't even stand up for his own wife or his father. And you shamed him into changing his ticket and coming back to Texas. Don't ever write any of these people off. Don't think about it in terms of party. Think about it in terms of our power and the fact that we are not going to leave workers stranded in states that are red states or communities that are red communities. There is no borders for labor. There is no borders for working people. And we're gonna to stand together and solidarity is what gives us the power. It's the antidote to everything. It's the antidote for environmental justice, racial justice, gender justice, economic justice. Solidarity will help us win. There is a lot you can do. You can organize your workplace. You can get a job in a strategic industry that needs organizing. Or you could get a job at a workplace with a union that could benefit from a more militant rank-and-file membership. And you can also just take action now to get the PRO Act passed. It just passed the House. The Senate, of course, will be a bit trickier. Join DSA to phone bank for the PRO Act this March 21st through 28th. I will include a sign-up link to that phone bank in the show notes. Please sign up and help out. Before we get started, your support at patreon.com slash the dig makes it possible for me to do this podcast for a living and to pay everyone who helps put the dig out every week. And contributions from those of you who can afford to contribute is also what allows us to put up every episode for free with no paywall because a paywall would really get in the way of what we're trying to do here. We also have a free book or books to send you as a thank you or for larger contributions, we now have very nice-looking dig mugs and also tote bags. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, consider joining the Dig Book Club so you can join our upcoming Zoom conversations with Paolo Garbaldo on his book, The Digital Party, and with filmmakers Astra Taylor and Eric Stoll on their documentary, You Are Not Alone. Join the Dig Book Club by visiting thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. I will put a link in the show notes. Also, thedigradio.com is incidentally where you can find nearly 300 episodes of The Dig organized by topic and by guest. These are some vast archives. Okay, here's Alex Press and Jonah Furman. Alex Press is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. 
Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Nation, and Book Forum, among other places. Alex has also, despite her very best intentions to the contrary, she has also labored as a podcast host. And that podcast was Casualties of History on E.P. Thompson's book, The Making of the English Working Class, co-hosted with Gabe Winant. Jonah Furman is a labor movement organizer and member of DSA. He has worked with Labor Notes, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, and served as labor organizer for Bernie Sanders in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's 2020 campaigns. You can subscribe to his very good and extremely detailed labor newsletter at whogetsthebird.substack.com. I will link to that in the show notes. Alex Press and Jonah Furman, welcome to The Dig. And Alex, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Union membership rates today are totally abysmal. 10.8% last year, down from 20.1% of workers belonging to unions in 1983. And as a 2019 essay in the Boston Review put it, quote, even more telling is the near disappearance of strikes. In the 1970s, there were, on average, about 289 annual work stoppages involving at least 1,000 workers. As bargaining power shifted decisively to employers, that average has plunged, reaching only 13 per year over the last decade. On the other hand, the percentage of non-union workers who say they would join a union if if they had the opportunity reached 48% in 2017, way up from 32% in 1995, the last time the question was asked. Let's start with an overview of the labor situation. Where do things stand now after decades of neoliberal attacks and economic reorganization? What industries have been hit the hardest? And what are the sectors in which organized labor remains powerful, is holding on, or even better, is on the offensive? Just as the top line kind of overview, so union membership right now is around 10.8%. Um, and it that masks a big disparity between the public and private sector. So about a third of public sector workers are union, about five times as many as in the private sector, which is around 6.3%. And I'm glad you mentioned the number of people who say that they would want to join a union where they sort of presented with that option. Um, I think a lot of people on the left often tout these recent polls that show, you know, historic uh, or at least very high approval rates for unions. So about 65% of people polled in, I think, the last year say that they approve of unions, right? And and yet these numbers are very different, right? So the number of people actually in unions is very different than the number of people who support them or want to join them. Um, so I think just as a sort of introductory question or problem that we need to talk about might seem obvious, but I think it's worth posing it is just the problem with unionization rates is not that people don't like unions. It's that they can't join them, they can't seem to form them, and they can't seem to keep them. Um, So I think that's where I would start. And then I'll let Jonah talk about sort of different sector breakdowns from there. I think it's a great question. What's the state of the union movement today? I think in some ways, you know, we talk about it as a declining movement, but in some ways, we've just been at the bottom for a long time. So you can use different metrics to talk about it, Strike activity peaked in the mid-40s to the mid-50s. Union density peaked in 1955, meaning the percentage of 
the workforce who are union members. And around 1980, mid-70s to 1980, you have an absolute membership peak. So population keeps growing, the economy keeps growing, but you have an absolute drop in union membership. So kind of however you slice it, we are very low historically. And not just that, but we're not declining so much as we're just sitting at the bottom. I think some people are pointing to some metrics that are exciting about 2018 and 2019 recent developments. You know, it's true that those two years, 18 and 19, were a big uptick in the number of workers on strike. Um, But to talk about sectors, first of all, that uptick is relative to the mid 80s, which nobody would say is kind of a peak of union power or anything like that. It's just a lifetime peak for a lot of people uh, in the labor movement. And then sector wise, that peak has been, you know, that was teacher strikes. There was amazing developments in the UAW. There was a big GM strike. There was a stop and shop strike that people don't talk about much of, you know, about 30,000 workers and a lot of other activity here and there. But if you look at it, the fight back sectors, if you can, you know, say that there is something coming back or some strike activity coming back, discounting what happened in 2020, which was very low activity, you know, that was really situated in the public sector, in K-12 in particular. And when we talk about historical comparisons, a lot of what we're talking about, you know, in 1955, when they're counting union membership, this high density mark, they're talking almost exclusively about private sector workers. Whereas now, you know, it's something like 30% density in the public sector and like 6% density in the private sector. So any way you slice it and anyone you ask, I mean, there's really few people who in in the union movement or outside it who accept maybe <laughs> the right wing who think unions are strong or in a position to grow at this moment, aside from this kind of uptick from the past couple of years. One interesting poll that I found was a Gallup poll from 2018 that found that although a public opinion of unions was up with more than 60% of Americans viewing unions favorably, 51% were really pessimistic about labor's future, believing that unions would grow would grow weaker over time. Do you think there's something going on there where people want unions but don't think that in today's United States they can get them? I think that's a very insightful kind of reasonable response for people to have, to sort of look at the lay of the land and come to the conclusion that things are only going to get worse. You know, in my experience, a lot of people, you know, there is a difference in what the experience of work is like um, in the past few years to what it used to be like. It's not necessarily precarity. You know, that's a word I sort of um, think is overused. But there is a sense of sort of disposability that, you know, there is high, a lot of people cannot get jobs. You know, a lot of segments of the population suffer from sort of perpetual unemployment. Um, And the jobs that they get feel like they are not going to last for long. So either they're incredibly grueling hours and unpredictable scheduling. There's a lot of turnover from one private sector employer to the next and a lack of sort of the sense of a career. All these things would lead someone to conclude that things are only going to get worse. And even if you approve of unions, you have to assume that you know, if the bosses are taking over the last little bits of freedom you had, then, you know, they're probably going to keep destroying unions as well. Yeah, this is something that we confronted with with Bernie, and we'll talk a lot more about that campaign later. But it occurs to me now that the key problem that I confronted at the doors wasn't convincing people that Bernie's platform was good. It was convincing people that it was realizable. Yeah, I mean, for the labor movement, people kind of discount 
the importance of inspiration and victories. Like it matters to win. And when you haven't won in a long time, I mean, I think that's, again, to go back to the teacher strikes, like why did that spread is because partly because of broader, you know, underlying forces that were the symptom that the strikes were a symptom of, but also because West Virginia teachers appeared to win and Arizona teachers appeared to win. And that really matters. And unions haven't won in a big public way uh, in a long time. And they pretty much losing or if they win, it's defensive battles. So right to work passes in more states and more anti-union laws are instituted and density falls and the unions that do exist, pension plans fail, things like that. And those are very public and and hard to discount when you're talking to a worker, thinking about, you know, what are their odds if they look at the rest of the working class and see how it's going for them. Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to underline that even though I think some people don't like talking about these more sort of feelings and emotions and whatnot that are part of the equation here, but you mentioned on the doors this was a problem when door knocking for Bernie. I mean, similarly, in the context of trying to organize a workplace, this is a huge problem where it's not that someone oftentimes, at least in my experience and from, you know, people I talk to in the labor movement who are organizers, it's not that the worker is opposed to a union per se. Um, often they even sort of support the idea in theory, but they just aren't convinced that it's going to be worth the effort. They know it's going to be a lot of effort. And if the payoff seems minuscule because they've never sort of seen what the effects can be, then they're not going to commit to sort of getting off the sidelines. And it's not just about sort of tangible benefits, but actually the complete lack of experience a lot of us have in ever sort of coming together as a collective with your coworkers or with anyone and being able to change anything, whether it's your workplace or the world. Um, and I think this kind of sense of complete demoralization and this um, inability to have any experience with that sort of a win um, in your own life, as well as in the sense of sort of union successes and, and campaigns, um, is a huge obstacle and a huge part of the conversation. Well, at the risk of contributing to that obstacle, I want to continue with more bad news before we get to what to do about it and some hopeful stuff, starting with the pandemic, which has devastated Unite Here's membership in particular. At one point last spring, they reported 98% of their members, people who work in hotels, casinos, food services at universities, airlines, airports, sports stadiums, 98% were out of work. How are Unite Here and other hard-hit unions coping and their members? How are their members coping? And how might they fight back as the service sector recovers post-pandemic? I mean, well, I think one post-pandemic question is like, is there going to be like a release valve moment uh, as the economy picks up? Traditionally, when things are going well economically is when workers are more empowered to make demands. When things are going poorly, you know, the labor market suffers and the institutions that engage with the labor market, like unions, suffer as well. So I do think there's, you know, this huge question of what is the pandemic's relationship to worker organizing. I think what we've seen so far is it's terrible. I mean, it's, you know, it's like total immiseration. And one of the questions is, one of the tensions here is like institutions versus movements, right? So like, clearly there's a very strong movement in Unite Here of, you know, this largely women of color workforce that in many ways won the presidential election for the Democrats, won Georgia's Senate seats for the Democrats, has 
won things legislatively. They just, it looks like they're going to win this COBRA extension in, in the in the relief bill that's that's going through the Senate today. The institution is absolutely just pummeled, but the membership seems quite strong. And I think Unite Here is a really interesting example of a union that has a pretty strong identity. It's hard to generalize these things, but has maintained its strength of movementness while its institution has been totally hit by this. And I think there's other unions that aren't going to uh, survive the hit the way Unite Here has. Alex? I think just to give sort of a broad, a different perspective, you know, the fact that it's a question is because on the flip side of the picture that Jonah's painting is that while it's true that workers tend to sort of make gains when they're already making gains, right, when the economy is sort of on an upswing and um, there's more money to go around and whatnot and more confidence in one's ability to find another job if one sort of gets retaliated against for organizing, you know, the flip side is that a lot of people have experienced the past year as hell um, and they feel that they have nothing to lose, you know. So there is some sense, certainly at the sort of stage one sort of first step level of organizing that a lot of people are starting to sort of act up and speak back. I write a lot about Amazon. Um, Amazon workers have been over the past year increasing their organizing. Um, no one has won a union yet. Um, I think it's worth stating up for anyone who doesn't know that Amazon is one of the most anti-union companies in the country um, and also a very powerful one. But workers have been staging walkouts. They have won workers reinstatement who were retaliated against for organizing. You know, there is a union vote currently um, taking place in Bessemer, Alabama. Um, and so these are things that were somewhat unimaginable, I think, for a lot of people in the labor movement just a couple years ago, that there would be so many walkouts at Amazon warehouses that they stopped being sort of newsworthy, right? People stopped really caring. They were just like, oh, yeah, the Minneapolis warehouse workers at Amazon are once again sort of on strike for a day. Um, and so while that's very proto stage, it's a big difference from having a walkout for two hours versus winning a union at Amazon. Um, I think it's worth at least highlighting that this is starting to happen um, in certain sectors that are not unionized, um, at certain companies that are not unionized. Um, and so I agree with Jonah that um, it's an open question. And I certainly personally think things look incredibly bleak. I think people have um, suffered in ways that they really haven't um, ever experienced in the past few decades. Um, I certainly see that all the time, that they're alienated and they're alone and they're desperate and they're out of work. Um, but there is something to be said about the possibilities going forward. Yeah, one thing that I found most hopeful for labor is, of all things, an IMF study that found historically that epidemics are often followed by social unrest because epidemics highlight and exacerbate all of these pre-existing problems, but during the epidemic, you can't do much about them. But after the epidemic, or in this case, pandemic, is over, that might be another thing entirely. Yeah, I mean, I think, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I think one example of this that's worth highlighting uh, that I've certainly remarked upon is that over the summer, of course, there were immense protests um, against police brutality. Um, you know, millions of people participated in these protests in the streets and at all levels of politics, right? There were 
sort of legislative efforts, there were election efforts, all of this sort of melded together into a genuinely, you know, I would say a mass movement. Um, that And people at the time sort of asked where organized labor was. And I think that's a conversation worth having. Certainly unions, I think, made mistakes in their um, sort of lack of engagement at certain points with that movement. But I bring it up because people who were in the streets and who were experiencing this sense of collective power also work. And so these people went back into their workplaces and were very confident and were less willing to put up with bullshit. Um, and, you know, again, to bring up the Bessemer Amazon warehouse, you know, a lot of the workers there, the majority are black. It's about 75 to 80% black in that warehouse. Um, and they were very active in the movement against police brutality mm -hmm. and also in the movements um, in their area to take down Confederate statues. Um, and they're explicitly framing their union campaign as also about anti-racism. Um, and so I think it's just important to realize that we're not talking about distinct things here. We're talking about if there's a growing confidence in one part of the world, in one social movement, that actually can bleed into um, the labor movement itself. Another pandemic question, what do you make of the discourse that emerged around essential workers? Do you think it strengthened the importance of labor in the eyes of the public? Or as a friend of mine who I was texting with last night, Chris Newman, who works with the National Day Laborers Organizing Network, I asked him, like, what should I ask you guys? He, he argues that it's done in his words, quote, done nothing more than advance public sympathy without yielding any policy victories or transformative organizing potential. What do you two think? Yeah, I mean, my piece on this is that I just, I really hate the phrase um, and in ways that I really couldn't articulate when it first started coming out. Um, I think I even did write pieces at the time that tried to make use of it to, you know, sort of leverage that term as if it would um, strengthen workers' rights. But a, a word is just a word. And um, I think it's totally true that it sort of has gelled into this co somewhat condescending sympathy for workers um, without having any real results. Um, I did just, in a piece I, I published last week, I'd interviewed someone who worked at a Tyson poultry processing plant in Arkansas, and he said he hated the phrase. He said that actually, you know, we're essential machines for these companies, and this term is just meant to sort of um, mislead people. You know, when he hears Tyson use that phrase, it's just like nails on a chalkboard for him because they're abusing him and his coworkers. Um, so I really hate the phrase that I'm certain someone soon will be writing a book about that phrase because uh, it's just inevitable that it will happen. Jonah? Yeah, I, it, it's totally, a, it matters who it's coming from, I think. I think it can be very empowering for some workers to talk about that as kind of the frame. I think it's also you know, it's been a year, right? So it's like in the first month, it felt kind of empowering to have people banging pots and pans for, you know, nurses and healthcare workers and things like that. And and we asked the system once again to put up or shut up about essential workers and, and it shut up, right? Like, I don't think there's been no victories. I think some of the stuff we're seeing actually now in like West Coast grocery uh, unions, you're seeing you know, local uh, ordinances about hazard pay. LA just passed a $5 an hour hazard pay for the next 120 days. These things come slowly, unevenly, and totally inadequately for the suffering the workers faced. It's also very localized, right? If you're a meatpacking worker in the Great Plains, you are in a much 
worse essential worker frame than a grocery worker uh, in Seattle right now. And it's tied up in a lot of how, you know, some of it is how we talk about it. I think the terms are interesting and relevant and things like that. But again, I think in labor, even more so than in other kind of things we think of as social movements, how the institutions and like the the real power play happens is is a lot more important. Like if it's not money in a worker's pocket or a, a collective bargaining agreement, it's, you know, hard to think it matters what we call our, you know, our nurses and our uh, transit workers. Another really bad thing that happened to labor recently alongside the pandemic was Prop 22 in California. It overturned a state law that had, I think, just been passed, if I have it right, classifying gig workers as employees rather than as contract workers. What is Prop 22? And then, importantly, how did gig capitalists like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, how did they convince a majority of California voters, ostensibly the most progressive individuals on planet Earth, to support it? Yeah, so Prop 22, you know, it, in a very simplified explanation, basically exempts these companies from having to sort of grant these workers their rights that they have, they have um, period. Um, so it makes them not workers um, under the law, it exempts them from all of the benefits, rights, whether we're talking about healthcare, minimum wage, the right to sue, um, dealing with sexual harassment, um, the risks associated with workplace injuries, all of those things now, these gig workers no longer sort of have those rights. They can't access them. Um, that's the short version of it. Um, and again, it's worth saying that, you know, this was a somewhat existential question for these companies. Their business models are built on labor arbitrage, um, getting around the law and having so much VC money backing them um, that they can just run roughshod over the legal system. And, you know, politicians and, and the working class are just too weak to contest that. Um, and so they end up winning. Um, and the main thing that these companies did in the lead up to Prop 22, which they had written, um, this is a law that was written by the very companies that benefits, you know, they convinced the average California voter that this is what gig workers want. Um, and I think that's an important thing that a lot of people um, sort of when they hear about Prop 22 success, um, I think have a little bit wrong. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of people sort of blame California voters um, for falling for this, that actually these liberals don't care about workers' rights, and that's why they voted for Prop 22. I really don't think that's true. These companies spent over $200 million on a propaganda campaign that was centered around the idea that this is what drivers want, and it featured certain drivers saying that that's what they wanted. It actually sort of coerced drivers into saying that they wanted this. There were pop-ups in the app that drivers actually needed to assent to um, that said that they supported Prop 22. Um, and it's all of that is worth saying because it's predicated as a strategy on the idea that drivers do not have a collective voice. There are no institutions that can say we are speaking for drivers and here's what we're saying. Um, there's the emergence of those institutions in California. There's a group called Rideshare Drivers United, um, which is a collection of thousands of these gig workers in the state um, who, you know, incre incredibly um, vehemently protested um, Prop 22 and opposed it. But if there's no organization that has the legitimacy of those workers' voices in it, then these companies can start manipulating you. Um, and they can convince you that just because one driver said something, they speak for all drivers. And so, it's yeah, it's a tragedy. Jonah? There's endless things you could say about Prop 22 in California. I think 
why it really matters beyond just, I mean, it should also be mentioned there was a provision in Prop 22 that was like, it will take a seven eighths vote of the legislature to undo this law. Like there was locks put on on this. So they paid $200 million to get a permanent change to how uh, employment law works over and above, you know, what the legislature wanted to do in that state. Uh, so really an assertion of just, you know, if you have the cash, you can write the law. Um, you can just buy the vote. But I think beyond that, it's nationally significant because it's talking about creating a, a different carve out for these independent contractors, which, you know, this is a group of workers that ranges from extremely impoverished people who are like desperate for work and can't get a traditional job that has benefits and decent pay to, you know, what we would call like PMC freelance writers who are like pushing for, you know, the flexibility and things like that. Um, but what it's going to do is create a formalized system to erode employment status for all workers. So we've seen immediately after Prop 22 passed, we saw grocery delivery workers at Vaughn's. Like this is a, you know, a union company that uh, people have collected pensions working at these companies. Now these jobs are becoming independent contractor, quote unquote, jobs, right? So the danger is that we're going to see this spread nationally. And there's signs, there's mixed signals, basically, from the Biden Department of Labor of, you know, are they going towards the third category? Or are they not? And I think the, the thing to know about it is that, like, it's not that labor didn't try to organize gig workers and Rideshare Drivers United is still going for it. Uh, the Teamsters, SEIU still talk about this, but they didn't have the power to to organize these workers. And I think this is like a pretty stark example of why organized labor being weak affects much more than just you know, those union members. Uh, it means that, you know, if you can't organize non-union traditional employees, then you certainly can't organize against this entire regime of uh, gray zone employment status um, that just erodes everything. And it becomes a race to the bottom. So now, you know, whatever industry you're in, there's going to be uh, Prop 22 inspired independent contractors coming in. And it might even get the seal of approval of the Congress uh, in a formalization of this status. And it's gonna gonna send us into a further tailspin. Yeah, Josh Idelson at Bloomberg had a really disturbing in-depth article on how corporations are going on the offensive after Prop 22. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read from some of that here. Quote In December, Albertsons, the supermarket chain, started informing delivery drivers they'd be replaced by contractors. The Coalition for Workforce Innovation, a lobbying group that seeks to enable wider use of contract labor, includes trade groups representing Amazon.com, Apple, AT&T, Comcast NBC Universal, CVS Health, General Motors, Nike, Rite Aid, Starbucks, T-Mobile, Verizon Communications, and Walmart, as well as construction, finance, media, sales, and trucking interests. Now, gig companies are pressing their advantage. While pushing Prop 22 as a national model, they're also aiming to secure deals with unions in states like New York and California that could codify some form of union representation as well as benefits without making workers employees. Some of America's most powerful union officials are signaling similar flexibility. Mary Kay Henry, 
the president of Service Employees International Union, SEIU, America's second biggest, says she'll listen to ride-hailing drivers and, quote, back whatever they think about whatever company might be interested in reaching an agreement. Ceasefires with major unions could be one of the gig company's biggest coups to date. In exchange for some perks, such as bargaining and health benefits, they could cement their immunity from traditional employment law and stifle more aggressive organizing efforts. What's what's your assessment of this post-Prop 22 assault, and what do you make of Labor's response so far? I mean, I would just say that Josh Idelson piece is great. It has a range of kind of responses from Roma Lois and the Teamsters and Mario Salento and the New York State AFL-CIO. It, they're talking about cutting a deal, but it's it's not a deal. I mean, if you don't have anything on your side, there's there's no leverage there. This is like the fundamental basis of collective bargaining. The idea is that you have, you know, X number of workers mm-hmm. that are have, have the ability to organize to extract concessions from an employer. Uber and these gig companies and, like you said, Verizon and AT&T, Amazon, they're bargaining, ostensibly they're cutting deals with, with labor leaders, but if there's no one behind the labor leaders, they're basically negotiating with themselves mediated by the state. You know, there's no countervailing force. So Uber brings a proposal on, and you see this with sectoral bargaining too. So the idea that we're going to institute a new regime of labor law or of, you know, how wages are set in this country. What happens when the corporations bring a proposal and the unions say no, and the corporations say, so what, you know, like what's, what's the punchline there? And, you know, there's, it's not to say that, SEIU and the Teamsters and large unions are powerless here, but there comes a time when the rubber meets the road where if you don't have workers, if you're missing the worker piece, there's there's no leverage there. So I, I don't really understand what people think is going to happen. Um, it seems clear that the corporate interest will set the rates and we're really relying on the state to put the brakes on it, which, you know, is not has not been a good bet. What what has labor tried in terms of organizing gig workers and why why has it failed? Why has it failed is a hard question. I think there are good examples. I think the New York Taxi Workers Alliance is a really shining example. In the late 90s, this is a group of cab drivers and black car drivers and eventually app-based drivers in New York City that was brought into the AFL-CIO with an official charter. Um, I think it was like the first group to be brought in without, you know, uh, any standard union uh, rights to it. And they've held actions, especially, you know, in 2017, the, the airport action that uh, I was at and a lot of people were at where the, the Taxi Workers Alliance said, we're not picking anyone up, we're not contributing to this. And using actual worker leverage to extract concessions, they've shut down streets, they've done mass action. I think you can't downplay the barriers. The unions are operating in a uh, regime of labor law that makes it illegal to, you know, for independent contractors to bargain because it's, you know, seen as price fixing because these are, after all, every Uber driver is its own, uh, right, business, right? So it would violate antitrust law to have them colluding uh, and organizing. So they face an impossible legal regime, but it's also the case that 
that was true for public sector workers for for decades. You know, the United Federation of Teachers is the New York City Teachers Union was formed through a series of illegal strikes. And this is by no means, you know, like a radical communist uh, militant union nowadays. So I think there's a serious there's been a serious move away from militant action that risks lawbreaking and risks political alliances. And I don't think you can credibly say that the unions have tried to organize on that basis at scale um, outside of a few, you know, bright lights. If every Uber driver is a small businessman, according to the law, essentially, obviously that obstructs their ability to organize. But has that also helped spread a certain sort of petite bourgeois ideology in this country that poses a hurdle for organized labor, the sort of thing we saw expressed in that horrible five to nine Dolly Parton Super Bowl ad. That was very impressive, Dan, that you've managed to bring up Dolly Parton now in the podcast. Uh, Twice in a row. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think a lot of people talk about this and it's worth talking about the sort of subjective investments people mm-hmm. have in this ideology um, in the United States, you know, sort of the center of these ideas, you know, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing. Um, you're not a worker. You're just on your way to getting rich. That obviously exists in just about every sector to some degree. But I kind of think it's overstated. Um, you know, this is what happens when there's no alternative being presented, um, when there's no sense of what it means to actually sort of have power as a worker, um, when you don't get to experience what those rights are. It's makes sense to me that people would be more sort of swayed by the idea of being able to get ahead. Um, but again, that's about this individualization. Um, I don't think it's the fact that they are categorized as independent contractors or even, you know, small businessmen and, you know, loosely, um, that makes them sort of impossible to organize. Um, I don't think that's the causality that's happening here. Jonah? Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, I think people's consciousness is super contradictory. I think you could find UPS drivers who are, you know, heavily unionized in a very, a union that's very present in people's kind of idea of their workplace and their work, who will still espouse like, you know, rise and grind, hustle, uh, you know, entrepreneurialism and things like that. So, I I mean, I just think this stuff changes through struggle and uh, people articulate it in the ways that are available to them. And I also think that like, you can go back to uh, the roots of trade unionism in this country and talk about entrepreneurialism, you know, like craft unionists from the early 20th century were certainly like self-made men and, you know, talking about their, how people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and things like that. So I think it's, it's a way to understand it that I don't think it blames the worker, but it says like, this is a consciousness problem and we need to raise consciousness. And it's kind of like this orientation towards the discourse. That's, I don't think it doesn't matter, but I think it's, I think if you saw a credible move to uh, organize in these industries, you would see it might have the same vocabulary, but these articulations would shift to something that accommodates collective action and collectivism. Yeah, I mean, friend friend of the show, Gabe Winant, uses my favorite example um, on this question, which is that coal miners were sort of the model of these independent workers that had freedom and flexibility um, before they were before they organized into unions they were often held up. And it's just very ironic given that now people who oppose unions often hold up coal miners as sort of the prototypical people 
deserving of union rights and who are clearly workers. Um, so, I, you know, seeing how this stuff is sort of contextualized in the time and place um, that we're speaking in, I think is really important because, yeah, this is not a new problem. Not to go too deep down this ideological rabbit hole, but I do worry looking at Wall Street bets and Robinhood and a lot of young people's interest in, in cryptocurrency, that there is an attraction to finding the solution to their problems at work through these sort of internet hustles rather than through organizing with their fellow coworkers. Do you think I'm overstating the case, Alex? Um, no, I don't think you're overstating the case. I think probably Joan and I both are sh- expressing in our responses a sort of desire, a focus on how we change that, mm-hmm. um, which is that, you know, you don't sort of just look at the examples of people doing this, but actually figure out how to start building an, an alternative explanation and sort of thing for them to do. Because again, it's this sense that you've never experienced a collective effort. And so of course you turn to what you can do to hustle, right? I mean, everybody thinks, okay, I'll get rich off Robin Hood or um, buy, you know, Bitcoin at the right time. Um, so by all means, uh, I know it's a sort of industry in itself, sort of analyzing um, this individualistic ideology. Yeah. Um, but the question is how we change it, yeah. right? And I think it it's possible to change it. I've seen it happen again and again that people who used to think that start seeing um, that they can actually change things in a different way. And um, it's it's really not a huge obstacle. I, I've written a lot about the tech industry. Um, and obviously, this is a huge question in that industry as far as tech workers organizing collectively. They actually have more than, I think, a lot of other sectors, real reasons to buy into that ideology. I mean, they're often the people who are working full time in white collar tech work often are paid very well. They often do have a bright future um, and, you know, all sorts of things distance them from more blue collar or pink collar work. Um, But even they have I've seen people change their opinions on this stuff as they start seeing the challenges they have at their own workplaces to sort of getting the outcomes they want. You know, people joke about the boss is the best organizer. And I've seen that at certain tech companies, that people who have this very professional class ideology um, who think that they have no reason to be in a union, you know, as they start demanding certain changes and hit the wall um, uh, that is the employment relation in the United States, um, they start turning to other options um, and that ideology starts melting away. Yeah. And Jonah mentioned how consciousness is contradictory. And I think that's very clear in the case of Wall Street Bets and Robin Hood, where there is this, on the one hand, real individualist commitment to making it through the hustle. Also, obviously, even though it didn't really work for most people, the idea was that there was this collective action being taken against hated hedge funds. And so what to do about that contradiction is, I think, I guess, always the political and organizing challenge. I mean, I would also just say that, uh, you know, Robin Hood claims more users than the AFL has members <laughs> and the union movement. Wow, that's, more that than is very depressing. Depressing fact. <laughs> union, union facts. I right, right. Yeah, I always cheer up your day with that kind of perspective. Uh, but I think part of what I'm trying to say is like, The union movement, almost more than any other movement, relies on bringing in people who are whose consciousness is far, far from ready for the ideas that that we'd like to consider like the best of the union movement. Right. So, I mean, the union movement takes people who just happen to work somewhere and, you know, says now you're in 
what we want to imagine is a social movement around class struggle, you know, like, so if you don't have an answer for the Wall Street bets people, then you, you can't win, right? So it's, you know, a tiny, what you're talking about is a tiny version of the bigger thing of like, how do you reach those who have a contradictory ideology, especially when we're like swimming in this, in this soup of, of anti-collectivism, pro-individualism for decades and decades. It's a real tension, but like the answer cannot be, if the answer is that people with this certain ideological orientation are not uh, the target for union organizing, then the project has a very uh, dim horizon. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Jonah brings up an important point, which is that there is there are many things that distinguish organized labor and the labor movement writ large from other social movements. But one is that it does meet people just where they happen to be at work. Um, and I think this is particularly something worth talking about in sort of the current era, um, where I think often there's a sense that movements and even collective actions and efforts um, are sort of a... a a voluntary, um, an opting in, um, sort of project. So an affinity group. Yeah. It's an affinity group. You sort of already agree mostly say with, um, the fact that rents are too high and you want to do something about it. And so you start skimming broader and broader layers. If you're an organizer, can you get, you know, sort of friends of friends? Can you get people who sort of agree with you already, um, to, to move into action, which is an important question in itself, but, Organized labor does not rely on those affinities. It's just a matter of chance and geography that you're in this workplace. Um, and it poses very different questions, which is that you can have all sorts of different people. I think a lot of people sort of saw this um, on display when the West Virginia teachers went on strike. Um, I think certain some people were very surprised by this because they sort of have this sense that people um, have coherent politics, um, when, whereas most people do not. Um, most people are not us who are sitting around talking for two hours about the you know, ins and outs of the labor movement and how to be consistent um, with their strategic visions and short-term actions. That is not how most people live their lives. Um, and so when West Virginia teachers went on strike, you know, this was a state that had overwhelmingly been pro-Trump. And yet here were people who were melding these certain ideas also with the sense that Working class people have power and they deserve better. Um, and their their ideas were changed through those struggles. I mean, certainly I've spoken to many workers who, you know, their ideas around immigration change a lot when they get moved into action at their workplace with immigrant workers. Um, and so I think it's just a very different process that we're talking about here when we talk about um, how ideology interacts with sort of a person's actual actions on the day-to-day level. Alex, I think when we were in New Hampshire canvassing for Bernie together that you spent like an hour at a dude with a union voter for Trump sign or something outside his house. <laughs> okay, to be clear, to be clear, um, though the person who organized that, that um, canvassing was not happy that I had spoken to that person. I only spent about five to ten minutes at his door. I would not have spent longer. Um, but I knew I could convince him and I also wanted, well, I thought I could and I wanted to see if I was right. And I did. Um, and he did commit to voting to, for Sanders in the primary. So let's just be clear <laughs> that it's possible. <laughs> Not that I want to say that every Trump voter is a union militant in disguise or something. I really don't. Um, different conversation. But it, I did do that. <laughs> Another high profile attack on labor that we should talk about was the Supreme Court's 2018 Janus decision 
which made all public sector workplaces open shop. And it was thought to spell just like disaster for public employees. But those fears haven't really materialized. Membership has held relatively stable. What did Janus do and why weren't public employee unions decimated? And are there any hopeful lessons we can draw from that? Well, Janus implemented open shop in the public sector, which for people who don't know what that is, it's also called right to work. It basically means that you can be a union member with the full rights that that comes with without paying union dues. So the analogy I always give for people who aren't in the union movement is, you know, it's like if you could stop paying taxes, but still receive social services. And if everyone did that on a mass scale, you know, we know it would happen to the public services that we're talking about. They would be unfunded and crumble. I mean, it's not unlike what we've in fact, seen that in has reality. Happened. Yeah, like, <laughs> so if you need to understand what they're trying to do to the union movement, just think about what they've done to our ability to have a welfare state in this country. I Okay, I don't tend to traffic in much hope, so maybe Alex can correct this. But I think one of the things to understand about right to work, and people have been saying this since the 70s and the 80s, is that it tends to be a reflection of already existing class forces. And people say this about a lot of labor law, but it seems more true about right to work. So when right to work gets implemented, we don't tend to see a massive drop-off in private sector union membership in a state. It does tend to come with other draconian, you know, quote-unquote reforms that uh, do gut union membership. So like Act 10 in Wisconsin really did, you know, I don't want to say kill the union movement in Wisconsin, but really hurt that state, which was a strong union state for a long time. I think people were more scared about Janice because it was the public sector, which again, like we said before, has been the lifeline of organized labor for, you know, at least since the 70s. And it was it was new and there was a fear that there was going to be a mass exodus of dues payers. I don't think you can say there was kind of like this inspiring revisioning of, you know, moving from an a service model to an organizing model that convinced all these members to stay in. I think a lot of it is, you know, inertia. Um, You stick with the union. It's good. It's not a bad thing. But I don't think, I think we have to understand, especially Janus and right to work as much more of a reflection of uh, the balance of powers as opposed to the thing that tends to tip the scales one way or the other. To be clear, it's like, a totally demoralizing loss and something that needs to be fought in every state where right to work exists in the private sector. And, you know, if we can ever reverse the Janus decision, we should. Um, but I think it's much more reflective of, you know, class power than uh, it is a determinant of it. And Act 10, to clarify, was the anti-labor law passed about a decade ago, maybe a, maybe a decade ago this year, in Wisconsin under Governor Scott Walker which prompted this huge occupation of the state capitol and then a failed recall referendum. Yeah, and has been, I mean, this this seems to get less play than the right to work fight because in the popular imagination, there's more of an understanding of right to work. But provisions of what's happened in Wisconsin have spread to tons of states. I mean, like Florida, Iowa now have uh, recertification laws. So every year you have to say, uh, a majority of of people covered by a contract have to say, yes, I want a union, uh, you know, dues deduction. You effectively have to mount a new organizing drive 
every year. Yes, exactly. And part of the idea here is, sure, some of them will lose, but more than that, these unions are just in a, you know, like, they're just sucked into this churn of having to recertify every year. Other things like you can't bargain over anything besides wages and it can't exceed inflation. Like that was part of the Wisconsin uh, labor law regime. These things just, they do destroy unions. It's not just right to work. It's a whole package. And I think, I mean, I don't think, I know you can see it's happening this week in Idaho, Indiana, multiple state legislatures have, you know, bills in the works to do more than just right to work, um, but to gut unions structurally. Let's shift to something more hopeful going on right now, which is the campaign to organize Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama. What are the retail, wholesale, and department store union, or RWDSU, what are they trying to pull off with this organizing drive, and what's at stake? What could a victory mean for organizing both across the South, one of the most anti-union, low-union density regions of the country, I guess the most, and for also for nationwide organizing of these massive non-union companies like Amazon and Walmart that have taken over retail in recent decades? So I think just to get the basic facts of what's going on, um, there's a warehouse in Bessemer, um, Alabama, that has nearly 6,000 workers classified as in the bargaining unit, which itself was a huge point of contention between Amazon and RWDSU. Um, RWDSU is organizing that warehouse. Um, They had some level of involvement with trying to organize a warehouse in New York City, an Amazon warehouse, um, and they did not get to a vote um, to file for an election with the National Labor Relations Board. The story of how they came to be a part of this campaign in this particular warehouse is one that I actually, to be completely honest, am not entirely clear on. It's clear that the workers came to them within um, a few months of the warehouse opening. Um, So Amazon has built an incredible number of new facilities over the past year. Um, They already were doing that. And the pandemic has sort of supersized the company. Um, It's the hiring that Amazon has been doing is equivalent to sort of like shipbuilders in the lead up to World War II. It's just completely unprecedented. And so this was one such warehouse that opened uh, exactly a year ago now. Um, So they came to RWDSU, which has pretty significant representation in the area, particularly at food processing plants. And so their council there, that region, that RWDSU has been overseeing the organizing campaign. Um, So they're doing a mail-in vote, um, which will be finished by the end of this month, by March 29th, is when workers have to vote. Um, The stakes here are pretty immense, um, which is a scary thing to say, because if I'm being completely honest, I really couldn't tell you how likely I think it is that this campaign is going to win. But, you know, Amazon is a completely unorganized employer. It's the second largest private employer in the United States. Um, And it's also, you know, has an effect on adjacent industries and adjacent employers. So it squeezes the logistics sector, it squeezes UPS, it squeezes the the few existing public services we have, like the USPS. Um, It drives down wages in warehouses anywhere near them um, and across the country. Um, And so as far as what it compares to, I mean, certain people have compared it to, say, the auto plants before they were organized, that this was sort of what was at stake, where these were key engines of a central industry in the United States as far as the sort of power that that auto workers had in the economy. That puts a lot of pressure on Amazon workers to succeed in organizing um, this warehouse. 
um, because those really seem to be the stakes is that if they win this campaign, it's hard to imagine that these campaigns would not spread to other Amazon warehouses. There are already bits and pieces of that happening. There are certain warehouses um, that unions are doing preliminary organizing in. One recently, I think in Iowa, um, someone from the Teamsters sort of spoke to a paper about the fact that they were starting to try to unionize that warehouse. But so this would spread. It would also have an incredibly sort of catalyzing effect um, on people's imaginations because, you know, a lot of people don't think it's possible to organize something like Amazon. And so if there was a win here, um, that would really reset expectations. You know, Jonah said he doesn't traffic in hope and as, as if I do, um, maybe compared to Jonah, but I really on this subject of the future of the, the American labor movement, I'm pretty pessimistic. Um, and so this would force everybody, including me, to sort of reset our understanding of what's possible. Um, it's also worth making explicit that this is in Alabama, which is a right to work state. Compared to other right-to-work states in the South, Alabama does not have a super low unionization rate, but it is obviously overwhelmingly non-union. Um, so this would be a sort of flag um, planted um, in the South, which, as we know, and as your listeners probably know, has been incredibly resistant to unionization for since the start of the American labor movement. Um, and that anti-union sort of animus that exists in the South does not just affect Southern workers. This affects workers across the country as people um, have their employers shift their plants and production to the South. Um, it also affects the political terrain of the United States when there's no organized um, institution of workers in these states. That'll affect who's getting elected. That'll affect what laws are passing and so forth. So, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day and who lives in the South and he was saying, you know, that he realized Bessemer was only a few hours drive from him and was saying, um, can you imagine what a unionized South would be like? And it would be so different that we, I think we can't imagine what it would look like. Yeah. And Alex, you had a great interview, which I'll link to in the show notes with political scientist Michael Goldfield, who talked about how the successes and failure of labor and civil rights have always been just fundamentally intertwined in the South in particular, but also, of course, everywhere. And there's this really pivotal moment in the late 40s when the CIO's Operation Dixie fails to organize the South. And Goldfield says that this was because, in part because the CIO, contrary to the rosier conventional, conventional wisdom, failed to challenge Southern racism. And in fact, that the CIO organizers even reinforced Southern racism. Yeah, I mean, I think Goldfield's argument is really interesting, and I recommend his book on this, The Southern Key, which just came out. That interview was fun because he, he did summarize some of the really interesting research he did, which was looking, for example, at organizers' reports from CIO staff at the time of Operation Dixie. Um, and as you alluded to, I think a lot of people have this very rosy vision of what Operation Dixie was. It was, I mean, it was a heroic effort. There were great people involved and it was the right thing to be doing. It was people who realized that if they could not break the anti-union fortress that was the South. They were never going to get anywhere and the labor movement was going to decline. And that's exactly what happened. But Michael in this interview talks about the fact that the CIO actually, both in the industries it's organized, in who it hired to organize those industries, um, and in the approach they took in that organizing, all was trying to sort of appease the right wing. So they were trying to avoid being accused of being communists. Um, They're trying to be avoid being accused of you know, basically being um, 
race baiters, you know, of being pro-black um, for workers in a region where that was completely, you know, beyond the pale for the the elected politicians who sort of led the power um, institutions there. Um, and it's incredibly funny when you read these reports because, you know, the CIO staff are saying that these are these people they've hired to do this organizing are incredibly incompetent. And that's because they hired sort of the less radical people. They hired white guys, often veterans from the military, because they were trying to avoid these this red baiting. But they had to deal with it anyway, um, because anytime you're trying to organize a union in the South, you're going to be red baited, whether it's the 1940s and 30s or it's now. Um, and that's exactly what's happening, of course, um, with this Amazon campaign as well. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a really complex history. But I think the truth of the matter is that in the United States, if you cannot take racism on as a key issue in your organizing campaign, it either is going to lead to failure or I think more likely as an explanation is it actually re reveals that you're very weak and won't be able to win. It's sort of a, a red flag of a campaign that hasn't really been able to take on the issues that people are need them to take on in these workplaces. Jonah, what's what's at stake in Bessemer, not just for labor, but really how a revitalized labor movement could really change American politics fundamentally? And then also, to the degree that you know, what does the fight look like on the ground? Yeah, of course, I can't speak to, you know, the nuts and bolts. I've been in touch with organizers who are involved directly. Just to speak on the, the fight at, in Bessemer, it's amazing. I mean, it's a, it seems to be, me to be a hot shop, which basically means in a couple of months, they just got flooded with cards, meaning, you know, people who want to form a union in that warehouse. And I think the question of this election is, can this hot shop survive Amazon's assault? You know, basically, is there enough um, energy among the workers? Is there enough organization that came together in, you know, the less than a year that this warehouse has been even open, let alone the massive turnover rates uh, at these warehouses, let alone how Amazon has packed the unit with temporary or former or seasonal workers, um, you know, in some cases, clearly hiring people from temp agencies to walk around on the shop floor, telling people to vote no on the union. So, you know, it's going to feel like a referendum on can Amazon be organized and can the South be organized? And uh, that feels really high stakes for this kind of inspirational level of taking cues. I think there's a shot in a way that we haven't seen. It seems to me like, you know, there's been a lot of alternative strategies for for organizing Walmart or organizing Amazon, doing mediagenic kind of press friendly stuff um, to kind of up the political pressure. And RWDSU is using some of those tactics, you know, is I'm glad they're enlisting Joe Biden to put out a video address and things like that. But it also seems like, you know, they're actually at, at the shop floor trying to get votes for the union, which has been kind of the missing piece. I would also say like bigger picture, kind of the medium term for this union drive is like, there's never going to be such a thing as unionism in one warehouse or in one company of an industry or in one state. You might be able to hang on to something like that for a little while. But if RWDSU or other unions can't spread the victory to the rest of the region, can't get to a first contract, can't involve other types of workers, then Amazon will either run away 
or they will win a decertification or, you know, stall on a contract for a decade or whatever it is. And I think this is really what's at stake in this fight. If there can be a breakthrough here, it'll have to just be the first salvo. It would have an incredible impact in terms of inspiration, in terms of, I mean, I think one of the biggest things is pulling other unions into the fight, right? Like, why do new industries not get organized? Sure, there's consciousness and there's boss fight back and things like that. There's also that it's a cost benefit for unions. Do you service your existing members or do you risk their dues on a massive new organizing campaign that could totally fail? And then you're, you know, you've, you've lost campaigns, you are weak to your own membership. And there's this tension, right? We say like, we have to organize the unorganized. This has been a slogan for so long, but these are also institutions that are trying to respond to their members. And there's a lot of interesting case studies of, you know, militant unions that like justice for janitors in in Southern California in their early nineties, there's this great kind of anecdote about them in this book uh, called Solidarity Divided about the change to win coalition where this militant new organizing campaign that famously high profile brought in all these new members into SEIU, the members then were in this new local and wanted to run the local how they saw fit. And one of the contradictory things that this, this, uh, that Bill Fletcher points out and Fernando Gapson in this, uh, in this book, Solidarity Divided, point out is that counter to the narrative of like these new workers want to organize more new workers is the members wanted the new members wanted to be well serviced right so they didn't want to spend the money on workers who weren't part of their established interest group so that's all a long way of saying like there's a tension here that we need to push our movement to take the risk to organize amazon and the reason you know one of the reasons that no one's ever filed an nlrb election like this at an amazon warehouse is because it's such a giant beast to take on you could the whole union could be destroyed, right? Like it's, you're just, you're poking the beast and you might not win and you probably won't win. Like looking at, <laughs> looking around you at the other efforts that have been waged. And just one last thing on organizing the South. I mean, I, I think it's been very demoralizing. We watched UAW lose in Mississippi and Tennessee in massive high profile thousand plus worker units. We watched Boeing fail beat back their union drive from the machinists in South Carolina, which is already, you know, these are already high density industries with experienced, strong unions that we expect to be able to win. So let alone trying to move into, you know, this new lean warehousing against a mega corporation. If we can't even win in our core industries and our existing employers, you know, who's going to want to take that risk, even if the reward is, you know, an actually organized working class? The only thing I would add is just to echo the point Jonah is making, which is, you know, we when you asked about the Goldfield interview, he has these really interesting findings from his research about the CIO's shortcomings. But, you know, I referred to the fact that they didn't want to be red baited. But this was what that meant in practice was so immense. You know, we're talking about a time when union organizers were being assassinated for trying to organize their coworkers, whether that was on shop floors, um, whether it was farm workers organizing, you know, communists in general were being, or people suspected of being communists were being sent to prison for treason. You know, this, the stakes were very high 
and the obstacles were immense. And that's still true. You know, people are not being assassinated left and right for trying to organize Amazon. But the obstacles, you know, are huge. And that's what's scary about something like this Bessemer campaign, of course, is that the stakes I laid out exist. And there's no way people aren't going to read this as a referendum on both organizing Amazon and organizing the South. But just the immense obstacles in the way of this union winning this campaign or of other unions winning, you know, in these other industries that Jonah referred to, um, I really think are it can't be overstated how much the bosses will fight, that they'll enlist elected officials, that people will have, you know, that unions in the area won't be able to commit to this because they're busy trying to keep their membership afloat and their dues coming in because it's a right to work state. You know, there's so many sort of decisions that have to be made as far as scarce resources. Um, and so that is the context that these fights are happening in. One reason that this is all so hard, organizing unions is so hard, is because labor law is entirely there at present to support bosses and crush workers. And there's a solution to all of this, which labor and people across the left are increasingly coalescing around, called the PRO Act that I'd like to talk about. How does existing labor law, a lot of it rooted in the infamous Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, how does it obstruct workers organizing unions, obstruct workers from striking, and obstruct workers from winning good contracts? And then how would the PRO Act comprehensively change that all? I think the shortest way to understand it is companies are allowed to do whatever they want in response to a union organizing drive. There's laws about that. Companies are not supposed to, for example, fire workers. You know, we saw this week there was a Trader Joe's worker who sent a letter saying, you know, me and my coworkers want this X, Y, and Z changes at work. Trader Joe's fired him on that basis. And this is like a direct violation of labor law. Uh, you can't be fired for advocating collectively for changes at your workplace. And the big celebration of onlookers was, you know, labor law works, but labor law almost never works. People get fired, lose their job. If they get it back, it's years later. The enforcement mechanisms are totally broken. So even just the law itself, part of what the PRO Act is all about is just saying, actually, you can't force your employees to go into meetings where you tell them why the union is so bad and how you're going to lose your job if the union is voted in you know, just basic things like conduct during these elections. When the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, was introduced in 1935, it was explicitly saying we think unions are a good, you know, policy solution for our society. Let's encourage unionization. And it's still, some of that is still on the books. Some of it has been amended out or destroyed through Taft-Hartley. But more than anything, just in practice, it, you know, there was there's just been ruling after ruling saying actually it's free speech for the company to say that you're going to lose your job if you vote yes on the union. And it's, you know, maybe there's an enforcement mechanism somewhere on the books, but it doesn't do much to go to a workplace and say, hey, your coworker who got fired when they met with the union three years ago got back pay, you know, on their eight dollar an hour wage and they had to move to another state. So a lot of it is just about enforcing the right to a fair election. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's kind of amazing that how big of a deal it would be just because our system is so deeply unfair and makes new organizing, you know, almost impossible unless you're willing to 
go to jail, break the law, all these things that, uh, you know, just raise the temperature. And if I have it right, it would also legalize secondary strikes. It would define contractors who are actually employees as employees. It would address workers being forced into mandatory arbitration. It would address employers' efforts to to define the unit being organized, which is a big problem and often the subject of fights between labor and management is labor says, I want to organize X group of workers and management's like, no, actually, you need to also include in that unit all these other workers who I know are you're going to have a hard time organizing and so you lose. And then it would also restore the NLRB's power to protect undocumented workers. So there's a lot going on in the PRO Act. Yeah. So, I mean, again, just sort of the way to think about it is all the different obstacles along the way to sort of having power in the workplace. So the ability to organize a union, the ability to reach a first contract, the PRO Act sort of deals with the idea that an employer will meet the law, the letter of the law by sitting down at the bargaining table, but they're not going to really bargain. This happens all the time that a, a new union doesn't reach a first contract. Um, it actually creates penalties. It creates a committee after one year where that's going to start forcing an agreement to be sort of hammered out. It also adds teeth to the enforcement mechanisms. You know, an unfair labor practice is what you can file if you feel that the employer is violating the law. That's already true. But often there are so many obstacles to even getting to that point and then to being having it ruled in your favor that, yes, the boss violated the law. And then when you get that ruling, the the fine that's levied on the employer is minuscule. So it increases those penalties and it increases um, what things count as unfair labor practices, which are basically it includes several of sort of the boss's go to weapons um, are now unfair labor practices under the PRO Act. So there's a lot in there and we've covered a lot. But, you know, it's sort of the immediate question becomes, okay, if this is so comprehensive and good, you know, why doesn't it already exist? Why is labor law so stacked against us? And then how do you win something that's this good for the working class? And, you know, that is, I think, the huge question. How does this get passed? Um, And, you know, how does it overcome the obstacles that have shot down far less comprehensive labor laws in the past? What is a secondary strike? What was the impact of them being prohibited? And what would re-legalizing them mean for labor? Sure. A secondary strike basically means you can strike a company that's not the direct company you're trying to organize or that you have a dispute with. So some of this is kind of like hot cargo agreements saying we're not going to handle materials from this this company because they have some labor dispute, but saying you can strike that second company, right? So in the trucking industry, this was huge to uh, building what would become the National Master Freight Agreement and the Teamsters that eventually covered half a million workers because they would say, we're striking this first company that has a labor dispute and we're striking the second company that has work with that company. So you're in many cases, the only leverage you have is this business to business activity. And I mean, you can look into this, but basically more of the economy is business to business than uh, consumer to business. So if you have a picket line that's saying customers can't come into the shop, that's fine for most companies, right? There's huge industrial corporations that only do business with other companies and you have to leverage those relationships. They're massive industrial companies that we've never heard of, that most people have never heard of because they don't 
they're not public facing. Exactly. So if you can't, you know, if all you're allowed to do is have a little picket line out front that says, we don't like these guys, there's not leverage there beyond, you know, your your labor power. But if you can do a secondary strike, it means you can strike a company for continuing to work with a bad actor, which then pressures the initial bad actor to change. This is something that I think if you talk to any worker, they would say, yeah, that's a great idea, of course. Like, that's why don't we go strike the people who are working with them? And there's soft talk of like boycott and little things that always have to dance around the secondary strike uh, law. But it's, it's uh, you know, it's off the books as of 1947. And it's been that way since then. So I don't know if this came up in the 1980s, but to cite an infamous case of a union being horribly busted during that period, it would be if you were, a, let's say, Hormel meatpacking worker, not only picketing Hormel, but supermarkets that were carrying it and insisting that they not carry Hormel. Yes, exactly. And there's there's certain things that you can kind of sort of do saying, you know, stop doing business. There's actually a fight right now where um, 80 light bulb makers in Ohio, um, it's like the last of this sort of light bulb uh, factory in the United States, they have these, you know, they're not pickets, they have these informational sessions outside of Walmart saying, Walmart, like, don't let this company offshore our 80 union jobs. If they could, you know, strike Walmart on that basis, it would be an entirely different conversation. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's brand new issue, Death Wish, is now available in print and online, and it is full of great pieces that Dig listeners will enjoy. One that might be of particular interest is Consequences of Deferred Maintenance, an essay by the editors. The piece situates the Trump administration's mismanagement of the pandemic within a longer history of deregulation from the right. Quote, The deregulatory impulse has a distinctly temporal quality, instilling the slow seep of future degradation even as immediate consequences are typically non-existent, the editors write. Killing long days by walking across New York's many structurally deficient bridges, it occurred to us that this is how COVID has felt too. Even if deregulation is only one of a litany of factors that led to the U.S.'s inability to respond to the pandemic in a responsible or even minimally humane way. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a subscription at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig at checkout, the dig, one word, no spaces, T-H-E-D-I-G. Enter that at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archive, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Enter the dig at checkout. Alex, returning to your point, the question of how to pass the PRO Act, because 
it really presents a serious chicken and egg problem. On the one hand, labor law is this huge constraint on worker organizing, so we need the PRO Act to make union organizing way easier and grow unions. But on the other hand, historically, labor law reform doesn't pass without mass labor militancy on the ground to push it. So what's the solution? Is it Are what we're looking for is something like a spark at a place like Bessemer to push forward a broader wave of militancy that then leads to the sort of pressure we need to pass the PRO Act, which then reinforces that organizing wave? Like, how does it work? How might it work? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. I think there's uh, an impulse to be doctrinaire about this and say, you know, the class struggle gets so intense that it overflows into the political arena and, and then the state has no choice but to respond. And I think that model, you know, if that were true, it, it might happen that way sometimes. But I think we insist on that as, you know, leftists, as organizers, as activists, because we want to think that the way things move is we we do our job well enough. We're good enough at this. We are the generation that has the skills and the and the know-how and we, we get it done because we organized so good. And I, I get the usefulness of that to, as an inspiration. And it sort of accords to, to mar- with Marxism or a certain <laughs> understandings of Marxism. Yeah. Like people are like, okay, the ba- you got the base and then the superstructure follows. Right, exactly. And, and I think like anyone who has like read beyond that first uh, idea of base and superstructure knows that like, oh, the superstructure influences the base and they go together and you kind of have to do that <laughs> stuff all at once. And you don't wake up at the at the beginning of the story. You're somewhere right in the middle. So I would just say as as a little bit of a digression, like I think in the New Deal, people love to say there was all this class struggle and FDR just had to respond. So he did the New Deal. And there's pieces of that that are true. But even say, you know, the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, which invented the union regime that we're talking about. I think there's a version of that where one of the stories I've read is that Hugo Black was the senator, introduced a 30-hour-a-week bill inspired by the Cincinnati AFL-CIO. FDR was like, well, we definitely can't do a 30-hour-a-week bill. So let's do this National Industrial Recovery Act that has this provision saying it's called Section 7A, saying, yeah, like collective bargaining or unionization is is a good idea and it's really flimsy. Then there come these strikes that are in, there's these general strikes in 1934 that the left always talks about because there was left leadership and they were really impressive in Minneapolis, Toledo, San Francisco, and this big textile workers strike. And people like to say, okay, these 1934 strikes then forced the hand of FDR and and, and the state had to implement the Wagner Act. And there's some truth to that. But it's also true that in those strikes, there was constant, you know, workers were talking about the Section 7A, like there's this little toehold, and it inspired workers to go harder. So I think to think about the PRO Act as, well, you just tally up our class forces, and if it's X, then it's not going to pass. If it's X plus one, then it's going to pass. It just doesn't, isn't really, I don't know, I, I think it's just ahistorical. And I don't think is as useful as we think it is I mean, people want to say that's why we need to foment more class struggle and, you know, don't don't bother with electoral legislative interventions because we clearly don't have the density or the strength yet. And it's just not how, you know, when if you talk to a worker, that's not how workers think about it. If you talk to unions, it's not how unions think about it. And if you look at history, it's not historically so, you know, ABC like that. I wonder how changes on the political right alter the political landscape for labor. Looking back a decade ago amid the 
2010 Tea Party wave, we saw we saw Scott Walker, Chris Christie launch anti-union campaigns with a lot of momentum behind them, particularly targeting public sector workers. But I really don't think that's where the energy on the on the right wing base is at all anymore. Just look at the post-Trump presidency Republicans' total inability to mount a coherent or effective attack on Biden's stimulus plan. Do you think the changing politics of the Republican Party and the political right more generally create an opening for labor? Not, I want to emphasize, in that Republican legislators might be allies. That is, generally speaking, a non-starter, as we see from Senators Hawley or Cotton's refusal to break in any significant way with Republican business orthodoxy. But in the sense that the business class might now struggle to mobilize the Republican base against labor in the same way that they used to? I, I think the story of the past 40 years for labor has been disarticulation. And like, it's less clear what it means to be a union member. It's less clear. And this is a broader social phenomenon, right? It's less clear what it means to belong to any sort of group. It's less clear what it means to vote Democrat. It's less clear what it means to you know, be in an organization, to be a union member. It's less clear what it means to live in a working class neighborhood. Like there's been a systematic dismantling of the institutions, both political and social of the working class. So I think maybe the way I would respond to that question is like, if anything, the right wing has faster rearticulated what it means, right? We have like this neoliberal period where it was like, no one belongs to anything. It doesn't mean anything to have any relationship to, you know, other social groups or be a member of this or that. And the right wing has, in a particularly, you know, I think nasty way, has rearticulated, like, what does it mean to be like a white man? And what does it mean to live in the South or watch this TV show? I mean, a lot of this is a lot of culture war stuff, but there is a bit of rearticulation there, which I think in response forces an articulation in other parts of society. So like unions now have to respond to this kind of thing because it's, you know, popping up in in their face, right? Their members are talking about QAnon, so they have to have a response to that. So I think that, you know, that's a form of of what this this kind of hard right move could mean. But I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're getting at. Yeah, I guess I'm getting I mean that's that's all interesting and I think correct. But what I'm getting at is is the right wing the right wing base doesn't seem as down as they used to be for mo- anti-labor politics. I wish it mattered more. You know, I don't think it matters what the base wants at this point, right? Like a, a, in some of these cases, I think, um, you know, I think it's really interesting. Montana just failed to pass a right to work law and other anti-union laws, despite a GOP supermajority. And that was just this week. I'm curious to see people kind of explain it. I I don't know that it was because there was like a responsiveness. I mean, I'm glad that the unions who were at the state house and putting pressure can claim the victory. But I also think, you know, there's just such an elite base mismatch that like to try to make sense of what is what is the the quote unquote base of of these parties want in relationship to what the party actually does. I find it really hard to tease that out meaningfully. Alex, anything to add? I really don't know about the relationship and whether they can, whether the Republican Party can say wage war on, you know, can pass right to work laws, for example, like really traditional front and center labor issues, whether the right wing 
necessarily can oppose certain parts of the PRO Act, you know, openly. Um, yeah, I think we're seeing this a little bit with the minimum wage debate as far as whether politicians feel comfortable openly opposing it. And I have to say, a lot of them do. And so it hasn't changed that much. Um, but what came to mind when you asked the question is just, it depends on what you mean by a labor issue. If we're talking about unions' rights, maybe that's um, a different conversation. But also, you know, the Republican Party in the lead up to Trump's campaign was mostly waging scare tactics about the movement against police brutality and the entirety of, say, the GOP convention um, of the RNC was about how cities are going to be burned down by black people and their bourgeois liberal white <laughs> friends who are college students. Um, and that was the theme of the, you know, of each night of the convention. That and, of course, there's fear mongering about immigrants. Um, and to, to me, those are labor issues. Um, if you're sort of making immigrant workers unable to access their rights in a country that's going to undermine union organizing campaigns. It's going to undermine existing unions. Um, and it's also going to fracture working class people who happen to be in the same workplace or in the same community. The same goes about policing. Um, whether we're talking about actual budgets and where money is going, whether it's going to things that help working class people or, or it's going to the police, um, or we're talking about other things that, you know, policing affects and touches. And certainly there has been no problem at all um, for Republicans to continue sort of fighting as long as they frame it the right way. Um, they don't feel any sort of um, inability to touch those issues. Let's talk about who runs unions today, because that's really key. And nowhere is that more clear than with teachers unions. In 2010, you had the caucus of rank and file educators taking over the Chicago Teachers Union. In 2012, that leadership took the CTU out on a historic strike. Six years later, 2018, we saw the Red for Ed strike wave in West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma. And then in 2019, we had UTLA strike in Los, the UTLA strike in Los Angeles under that union's left leadership. How did leftists remake teachers unions in Chicago and L.A.? What role did militant members play in the Red for Ed strikes? And what does that all reveal about the role that both left leadership and left militant rank and file membership what role those can play in what sort of power unions wield? Um, I, I'll, just to speak to CTU, I mean, the backstory of CTU's um, transformation, of course, is that Karen Lewis, along with many other rank and file teachers, many of whom were socialists and otherwise radicals, you know, they sort of organized and took over um, a very sort of negligent union um, in 2010. Um, and they started waging issues that were not just about their own sort of bread and butter issues um, like wages and benefits, but also became willing to take on broader political issues. So, I mean, the successful CTU strike in 2012, all, a lot of the sort of issues at hand were about class sizes and the ability to keep schools open. Um, they highlighted the fact that there's immense racial inequality and segregation in Chicago. Um, and in these ways, they actually brought parents in and brought the community in. Um, I'm just I think it's worth laying out explicitly because that's what, as a model, began to inspire these other teachers. And we saw that sort of break out on a national scale with the teachers. What's now called bargaining for the common good. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I think that's very compelling. You know, in the in Chicago, at, in that era, you know, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor at the time, was such a villain. And to have an institution of the working class that was willing to sort of take on the political fight and 
and oppose itself to sort of the villains of the city who were decimating people's lives. You know, that is the power of that, is that, you know, at the end of the day, part of the dangers of such a weakened labor movement is that it actually does, you know, it's called a special interest, right? That's sort of what people often say about unions who oppose them is, you know, you're just looking out for your members and your interests are at odds with the broader interests of the public. And, you know, labor unions at their best come back and say that they are fighting in the interests of working class people writ large, not just their members. And that isn't always convincing. Sometimes they are not doing that. Um, There are certain segments of uh, the economy where the workers within it, you know, have different interests than other people in the broader population. And if unions can't figure out a way to sort of take on those broader issues, um, then they do become marginalized. And so at CTU just, you know, is a great example of a union that is willing to sort of figure out a way to actually fight for all working class people. Um, And their their success was that people were on their side when push came to shove. Yeah, I mean, I think your your question about the role of left leadership is really crucial. And if I had one kind of hobby horse in in all my organizing is talking about what leadership does in the union movement. And there's like, you know, there's a, a line of people, people will yell at union leaders no matter what. And they'll say, you're standing in the way of the militant membership that's ready to go. And it's just like almost never true. I mean, very rarely that that's the exact dynamic, that the base is ready and the leadership is directly holding them back. There's like iconic examples of that in times of really, really militant class struggle. That's like, you know, millions of workers striking and wildcatting and things like that. And that is, you know, somewhat of the dynamic we saw in West Virginia. But the relationship between union leadership and union membership is a lot more complicated. And I think is something that we don't talk about enough. So like what they did in Chicago was they had leftists who were building the base of the union, organizing the base that would then push them towards the kind of action they want to talk about. Union leadership doesn't just say, okay, we're striking tomorrow and then the members are ready to go. And nor do, you know, the most militant members say, you know, we're striking tomorrow and the union says we're ready to go and we win. You know, there's this interplay that's extremely important. And there's also institutions of that interplay. So I think, you know, the, you said the caucus of rank and file educators in Chicago, that has grown into this national network, UCOR, it's this, the United Caucuses of Rank and File Educators that are connected to Los Angeles. There's caucuses in, uh, you know, West Virginia, in Arizona, there's connections. And building these organizations that can challenge for kind of the soul of the teachers movement is why we saw you know, a big part of why we saw um, such an upsurge in that industry and especially institutions like Labor Notes. Um, this is like, you know, what what Labor Notes exists to do is to connect those actually existing, whether they're leftists or whether they're just trade union militants, connecting and cohering these networks is like a key role. I think another piece of the teachers movement that we have to understand is The labor movement, as I think Alex said earlier, is not insulated from external social movements. And the way that gets articulated is, you know, varies a lot. But like the civil rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the immigrant rights movements, these have all entered the labor movements and been, you know, accepted or rejected or articulated in all different sorts of ways. But all the stuff we've seen with Occupy, with BLM, with the Bernie campaign, this stuff 
you know, it's the union members who are who are the same people who are in the streets, right? Like these these people are not, they don't just like disappear once they leave the workplace. And part of the task I feel like right now is like helping articulate how do we bring that social movement into the unions and especially what is the role of leadership in doing that? So, you know, can there be a justice Democrats of the labor movement? And I, I think like those kinds of questions are really the task of, of how do you replicate what's happened in K-12 education outside of, you know, just hoping that after the pandemic things will explode or, you know, maybe we'll have another financial crisis that will get bad enough that people want to fight back. I think there's a more proactive role for organizations like Labor Notes and DSA to play in this stuff. Well, and as an aside, Labor Notes is itself a contribution of organized socialists to the labor movement from the socialist organization Solidarity. I have a question for Jonah. Um, So I think this is a really interesting topic as far as the sort of how we're breaking down what's most important and what's not and the role of left leadership or sort of uh, more rank and file oriented um, strategies. And my question for you is, you know, it's very clear that some labor leaders might come from more radical roots and then they take leadership in the immense pressures of running a union in the United States in the 21st century, combined to sort of de-radicalize them or get them to agree to things that you wouldn't think that they would agree to, whether it's concessions, whether it's sort of anti-democratic internal practices, um, whether it's not being willing to take on um, challengers to powerful political incumbents. So can you lay out from your own experience, you know, how that happens? How do some union leaders resist that? Because obviously the critics of a focus on leadership say that that's the wrong focus, um, that every union leader is going to sort of start conforming to these constraints. Great question. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's like a key question. I also think like when we talk about left leadership, you just have to disaggregate the idea of kind of like, are you a socialist from are you a democratic trade unionist? And we want these things to be the same thing. And in their best expressions, they are, but you know, you can whatever, you can name a ton of socialists or communist leaders of unions who've been very anti-democratic. You can also name a ton of, you know, John Lewis was a Republican, right? And he like founded the CIO. What do we like, what do we make of that as people who believe in left leadership? I think, you know, we want to tell a story where it's like, man, if only the socialists were in charge of how these trade unions were run, we would, you know, have a much stronger labor movement. And I think, I think if the socialists weren't run out of the labor movement in the 40s and 50s, we'd have a much stronger labor movement. If the if the UE wasn't destroyed, right. almost destroyed. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think understanding the structural constraints that unions are under is important. I, I found it honestly very useful, and I've had people vehemently disagree with me on this, but very instructive to look at the Democratic Party and the kind of insurgencies we've seen in the party and compare it to the labor movement, right? You have young, new Democratic Party challengers saying the party isn't doing what it says it's supposed to be doing, right? Like AOC in Iowa gave this speech for Bernie where she says, you know, people say we're dividing the party. I say we're bringing the party home. And I think contesting for the soul of the labor movement, you know, you say solidarity, you say, you know, organize the unorganized, but when push comes to shove, there's structural pressures that keep that from happening. And I think one of the things we've seen, we've seen it in the teachers, but we haven't seen it as much 
I mean, we've seen in the teachers and the teamsters, and we haven't seen it in a lot of other sectors, is this challenge of saying, live up to your values, you know, be the labor movement you say you want to be. And I think those struggles are so important, not because if the right people could take over the unions, the unions could act differently. That's kind of, I, I don't think we can answer that in the ab- abstract, but there's, you know, there's this quote, political struggles shape the political terrain on which subsequent struggles are waged. That's from Left Out, this great uh, book about, you know, the left being pushed out of the AFL-CIO. And I just think the role that challenges plays in saying, you know, in raising expectations in the union movement of the membership of their union, I think this is a crucial uh, kind of political, social feature of strong unions that kind of as a byproduct of the weakening of the union movement, we've also seen the internal lives of these unions just kind of crumble. And you have leaders who just stay there unchallenged, or if they're challenged, it's on the basis of personality and, you know, the, this bureaucrat wants their turn or whatever it is. And I think part of what we need to see is what happened in the teachers, which is people said, okay, we said we're a union that, you know, stands with the community. What would that actually mean? What does it mean to like put meat on the bones of that stuff? And where it leads to contradictions, you know, have them out, right? Like, don't settle, have, have, try to build the community coalitions, try to do political work together, go on strike, see how that goes and learn from that as opposed to, you know, I think there's just uh, a risk aversion and there's not much incentive for uh, union leaders to step out because there's not much challenge internally for a stronger or different direction. Many in DSA and other socialists have embraced what's called the rank-and-file strategy to get jobs in strategic sectors of the economy and organizing a militant minority on the job from the bottom up. What What's the history of the strategy and what, what do you make of how it's being pursued today? Yeah, I would say, you know, the, the piece of it that's socialists taking a job to organize at the shop, this has been like a feature of leftism and left labor movements, uh, you know, for the entire history of the labor movement in this country. And I think it's basically like a necessary but not sufficient condition for rebuilding a left pole in the unions and rebuilding the unions at all. I told you the other day that I didn't have much to say about this. Jonah, I feel like it would be worth, even though you did just have to answer my other question, but I do feel like it would be worth talking about like what DSA is actually attempting to do. Yeah, unpack it a little. Sure. Yeah, I mean, okay, so to take the rank and file strategy as kind of a term, this is like, this is based on the work of Kim Moody, who is a leader of this group, the International Socialists, and then a socialist group called Solidarity. And he published this piece in 2000, but like the idea goes back way longer than that. And it basically has two kind of fundamental points, and we can get to how DSA fits into this. One is that the socialist movement and the workers' movement are out of touch with one another. And they, you know, they, they've been disconnected systematically, especially in the U.S., through the purge of communists and socialists from the union movement uh, in the post-war period. And our task is to reconnect the socialist movement with uh, the workers' movement, whatever those two things mean. You know, it's funny, he wrote this, he published this in 2000 and was doing this work in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And it's like, I mean, there's a version of rebuttal that's like, that's kind of the one time there wasn't either a left movement or a workers movement in this country that was 
big enough to to really rise to the occasion of like this merger idea. But that's that's like the fundamental premise of it is like, you know, for the left to grow, it has to reach into the working class and for the working class to be strong, it has to be connected to a broader politics and making that connection is the key task. And how you do it, why it's called the rank and file strategy is basically saying the unions are a strategic site and the strategic piece of the unions is the base. So, you know, as opposed to saying we should have our orientation as socialists should be to all kinds of social movements or our orientation should be towards powerful labor leaders. Basically, his thesis is saying the way to reconnect the socialist movement and the workers' movement is to connect the bases of those movements. So you have socialists in one room, you have, you know, the most militant active workers, stewards, whoever's, you know, most organized on the shop floor, connect these two, and then you'll have, you know, something like a formula for actually building uh, a meaningful left. I think in DSA, you know, some of it is there's fights around kind of what should we do as our strategy in the next six months. And then there's what should we think of as the strategy for the left for the next 30 years. So there's a lot of mix of kind of talking about tactics like, okay, should everyone just go get a job as a trucker and then we'll rebuild the Teamsters Union that way? Well, historically, that's been a piece of it. I mean, there was definitely leftists, communists who got jobs as truckers in the 30s and the 60s. And these were key parts of building working class institutions like that still exist to this day and are incredibly important. Or look at the three big general strikes of the, of what was it, 1934? Yeah, exactly. And, and some of... Each of them was associated with a left, left political current. Exactly. And, and some of that was, you know, organic workers who happened to join the left group and already were there. And some of it was literally, you know, socialists flying in from another city and saying, we're going to participate in the strike and help build it and help heighten the contradictions and push it into a political arena. So, you know, there's questions of, well, what's the most strategic thing to do? Should we all get jobs or should we try to become union staff or should we just organize the jobs that we have now? And I think, you know, like many good debates in a democratic organization, things get a little flattened and sharpened when really the answer has always been all of these things have been part of the tactics, right? Like in the 30s, these, this like golden era of union organizing, there were socialists on the shop floor who like got a job so they could organize. There were socialists who just happened to work and live in these communities. They, you know, they were just socialists who lived there. And there were socialists who were on staff of these organizations. And, you know, we code switch between like the rank and file strategy means everyone has to go, you know, get an Amazon warehouse job in, in Alabama or, or, you know, more realistically work at UPS or something like that. And it just kind of gets flat. That's where I kind of fall short on like how to talk about it. You know, it becomes like DSA fights, which are a beautiful thing and also a inseparable part of left history, but kind of hard to talk about uh, coherently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's worth underlining that the the need for this strategy comes from the fact that in the 1940s, there was a mass purging of radicals, specifically communists, from the organized labor movement. You know, I think a lot of the way that this gets talked about in the present is as if that history didn't happen. And people sort of look at um, what seems to be the composition of DSA, which is, you know, a lot of people who have college degrees. I mean, I've met truck drivers and carpenters and what and Amazon warehouse workers who are DSA members. Um, but it is true that there are a lot of journalists or a lot of graphic designers. And I think people look at that and say, see, 
the left doesn't represent working class people, but there is a history here and there's a separation that exists um, as far as what radical politics in the working class movements, specifically in the organized labor movement, how that's expressed and why it's expressed differently there than it is, say, among DSA members. Um, and so it's this constant effort to sort of re re-embed these two things together. Um, this separation doesn't just exist because, you know, DSA people aren't doing the right thing. It actually has a really strong, um, long history here. And, you know, it's not just that socialists think that they, it's not that people think that socialists can sort of solve the problems of organized labor. Like they will enter a workplace and be the ones who can sort of right the wrongs happening on the shop floor. It's that, you know, there's a commitment to democracy um, that's sort of at the heart of this. And it's what made left-wing organizers so effective when they were sort of in their height um, at the C in the CIO before the purges really um, got underway. Um, and part of the strategy is that, you know, to have that sort of left pull within workplaces to encourage the, the people on the shop floor who say are the, are the most trusted um, or have the best ability to sort of sway workers into action, um, that that's what the socialist will do on the shop floor. It's not really sort of this idea that like, DSA is going to save the workers or something like that. Um, but there's a, a sense of how this sort of interplay between these two things in the country interact, um, that it needs to be sort of um, brought back together. And as you mentioned, Jonah, it's been a persistent theme throughout the history of the American left. I have met boomer left-wing members and union leaders who got into whatever line of work they're in through some sort of communist or socialist politics, you know, half a century ago. Absolutely. I mean, there's no separating it. It's not, it's not a new, I mean, you could trace some of this stuff back to like the Vilna program or whatever, uh, you know, wherever you want to say it starts. I think when we use the term rank and file strategy, we're talking about kind of this legacy from the 70s to the present. But I think the idea that, I mean, I think what the actual orientation of DSA is, what's notable is that like, at least in the past couple of years, it's become clear that it's a socialist organization that believes in the importance of unions, organized labor, and labor itself, and like the worker metaphysic, which I think has not been a settled question for every kind of left sect that's existed in this country. So I think we kind of hone in on the differences of strategy or tactics and things like that. But I think there's a broad orientation, especially, I mean, looking at the campaign to pass the PRO Act, which is a DSA campaign between kind of, it's the shared project of the labor uh, section of DSA and the eco-socialist Green New Deal oriented section of DSA. The idea that the environmental movement is going to go to the mat for organized labor to expand its expand its power in the name of socialism, this is not like an obvious foregone <laughs> conclusion in the history of the U.S. left or left movements everywhere. And the fact that we've kind of like been like, oh, yeah, that's what socialists do is they support organized labor. Like that's in in some eras that would be a uh, you know massive step forward or, or just a different direction, depending on your perspective. Right. I mean, I remember being at I guess it would have been the the most recent DSA convention. And there was such heated debate over whether to sort of focus on the rank and file strategy or what about this proposal for organizing the unorganized um, that was explicitly sort of uh, speaking to CP era um, sort of ideas and slogans. 
And I just thought it was remarkable uh, that this was sort of the debate was, you know, we know that the world revolves around labor and that, you know, working class uh, agency is, you know, what will get us out of the mess that we're in. And so let's figure out how to sort of use our um, very scarce resources um, most effectively. It did feel like a very different conversation than, say, the ones I was having even in 2011 during Occupy. It's easy to sit here and say that the labor movement just needs to do more organizing, but people have been saying that for a very long time. In 1995, progressive SEIU, President John Sweeney's New Voices slate won control of the AFL-CIO with the hope that they could replicate SEIU's organizing successes like across the board. Successes like you mentioned earlier, Jonah, the disruptive militant Justice for Janitors campaign. And yet, a decade later, things hadn't much improved. And in 2005, another SEIU president, Andy Stern, led SEIU, Unite Here, the Teamsters, out of the AFL-CIO to form a rival federation called Change to Win, which was also ostensibly, ostensibly, about doing more organizing. But all of these efforts and more to revive the labor movement by doubling or tripling down on organizing have failed to stem decline. Why? My kind of glib answer would be, I don't think it's really been tried. I mean, you can look at those interventions and from Sweeney at the AFL, it being an extremely decentralized federation that wasn't able to kind of enforce its rules about increased organizing to change to win, which was, you know, in theory was about new organizing and sectoral reorganization and core industries and things like that. But it was very much like an unholy alliance of unions that just wanted to get out of AFL dues and unions that insisted they would never stop doing this kind of random general unionism, as it's called. There's an interview with Hoffa, the current still president of the Teamsters Union at the time, where he's like, yeah, we're never going to stop organizing whatever shop we can find, you know? So like, there was kind of on paper what these efforts were, but it's not the case that, I mean, like for Amazon, right? Amazon has been large and has been around and there has not been a union putting $10 million into a two-year campaign to organize actual collective bargaining agreements through whatever tactics, you know? And aside from like the fight for 15 at SEIU, which was you know, not even a traditional new organizing campaign, we don't see, I mean, there hasn't been even, for all the faults of Operation Dixie, there hasn't even been like a Operation Dixie in in name or even pretending to organize the South or to organize new industries in a concerted way. Part of it is this stuff is, you know, you have insiders and outsiders and, and people inside the room know what's in the budget and know what their the campaigns actually are. But I just have to say, like, it just, it's hard to uh, think of really mass industry-wide or geographical interventions that have been made to organize the unorganized. I think the more interesting question is like, why does that not happen? And it has to do, again, with this thing of these are institutions and movements at the same time, and they want to grow, but they really don't want to die. And there's there's just uh, tensions in trying to exist as a union in our current regime, but the regime doesn't seem to be ending. So the idea that we're going to wait it out until there's another opportunity or conditions change also seems less and less uh, credible as, a, as, a, as an out. Jonah, Mark Meinster argues in an essay at Labor Notes, and I think this might have been the sort of argument that you were referencing in terms of waiting till conditions change. He argues that these sort of organizing forward strategies, quote, 
were crafted to do something that labor history shows has rarely if ever been done, grow unions incrementally outside of an upsurge. He writes that, quote, unions tend to grow in spurts as part of working class uprisings that pose a deep challenge to the powers that be. The upsurges in the private sector from 1934 to 1939, when the CIO organized industry-wide, with sit-downs when necessary, and the AFL tried to catch up, and in the public sector from 1962 to 1972, when a wave of illegal strikes established the right to bargain, were rooted in militant worker action. During an upsurge, new possibilities emerge. What was inconceivable yesterday is suddenly possible today. Organizing between upsurges can produce incremental growth for some unions at some points, or at least slow the decline, but it doesn't lead to substantial increases in overall union density. What, what's your take on that argument? I think Mark is a brilliant organizer, and I agree in kind of essence with that argument. I think it begs the question of what to do about it. And I think it has a relationship also to this question of you know, thinking historically, is it the union's fault that that the the union movement has gotten so weak, or is it just you know Reagan and the business roundtable and the employer offensive and what the UAW president called in 1978 the one-sided class war that has not you know abated at all? And it might be the case that it's not the environment for an upsurge, and we just have to wait. And it might be the case that you know business and the right wing is just so emboldened that conditions aren't possible right now. But I kind of have like a Pascal's wager orientation to it is like, what are we supposed to do? We definitely don't know that those propositions are true. And if they are true, what does it imply? I mean, batten down the hatches while, you know, the working class just gets totally immiserated doesn't seem like an option, you know, not just morally, but strategically. And I don't think has proven successful. I think if someone made that argument to me in 1990, uh, the year I was born, I would, you know, if I could process it, I would be like, okay, that makes sense. Like Reagan was really bad. Maybe things will get better. Maybe there'll be an upsurge. But we've seen financial crises. We've seen now the pandemic. We've seen far right insurrection. We've seen, you know, wars abroad. There's been everything that should move the moment out of its stasis, if that's the theory, but it's not happening. So, I'm kind of just like, that might be true, but either way, we have to agitate for, you know, a different way of organizing or a, we have to just keep pushing or I, I just don't know what the other option is. Well, I think Meinster's argument a little more specifically is not that labor needs to batten down the hatches, but that it needs to cultivate the sort of leadership and membership that is militant and ready so that when an upsurge occurs, that labor can connect to broader social movement explosions like the 2006 mass immigrant rights movement or Occupy or last summer's Black Lives Matter mass protests so that when those movements connect, they can push along a surge in worker militancy. He writes, quote, the point is that moments like this come and go all the time, historically speaking, but they aren't sustained and multiplied because the forces aren't aligned to make that happen. The willingness of at least part of the labor movement to take risks in the form of sustained militant and sometimes illegal action appears to be a necessary component in turning a moment into an upsurge. And there's an interesting article that I'll link to in the show notes by Robert Brenner and Susie Weissman about just such a moment in 2011-2012 when Brenner and Weissman write that militant-led ILWU, International Longshore and Warehouse 
union local in, Long- in Longview, Washington, was in this huge fight at the ports that, that the union was just at a huge disadvantage in terms of the balance of forces with their employer, that the Occupy upsurge offered a real advantage or offered a real opportunity to change that dynamic. And an alliance was underway, and ILWU international leadership thwarted it, they argue. So I think Meinster's argument is more that the union movement needs to be ready to take and pursue those sorts of opportunities to to strike powerfully when the iron becomes suddenly hot. What do you make of it? I would just jump in to say that, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what's in Meinster's argument. And it kind of reminds me, you mentioned John Sweeney and the new voice slate and Rich Yesselson, um, a longtime sort of labor organizer, researcher, writer on the topic. He wrote an obituary at Jacobin um, when Sweeney passed away. And he talked about he'd been working at the time um, within the labor movement and that it felt like sort of the equivalent of a new pope was being chosen. He was very excited about Sweeney's campaign. You know, Yesselson had a lot of hopes, and yet he, in the piece, recognizes that this was completely walled off from any sort of, like, rank-and-file consideration, right? There was not a consideration of, like, giving members more power or something like that. It was not a particularly democratic process. You know, the people in who had leadership within the organized labor movement had a say in the matter. They were de- deciding who to choose and who not to support. But it was still this very controlled process, right? Um, and I think Meister's sort of point and something that can be said as a criticism is that there's still an unwillingness to take risks that involve sort of giving away control and power um, to workers themselves. So you see this in the unwillingness to try to organize new sectors and new employers. You see it in very staged, managed, media-centric campaigns that you know aren't about transferring power to workers and building them up to be organizers to take the lead, but often are sort of these, like I said, stage-managed. And, and the whole conversation so far shows that there are many things you can point to that explain you know, why this is understandable behavior, that you wouldn't want to take risks um, in the 21st century United States as a union. But at the same time, what we're seeing is that even the island cannot, you know, stand that this ultimately unions are going to lose power and that the good contracts that have been negotiated are going to be chipped away with concessions. So it does seem like that one conclusion you can draw here is that, you know, there has to be a shift in this willingness to take risks. And part of that is about a sort of commitment to building up working class people and being sort of democratic institutions. Yeah, I think that's an important point that labor leaders caution small c conservative disposition. Sometimes it creates a collective action dilemma where few leaders want to take the sort of risks that are needed to truly change the game for labor, because if they go out on their own, they put their own unions institutional interests at risk. It's like a serious collective action dilemma. It's not because the labor leaders are necessarily bad people. Real stuff is on the line for people. And I think a powerful and depressing case in point was the failure of many, most unions to endorse Bernie in either 2016 or 2020. And I know, Jonah, you were very involved in this uh, working on the Bernie campaign. How did labor deal with Bernie? Which unions endorsed, which didn't? And what does that reveal about the state of labor's political strategy and allegiances. Uh, yeah, I was I worked as a national labor organizer running 
the union members for Bernie program, which was kind of the the member side of it, right? So like organizing union members uh, in particular to talk to their coworkers and to join the campaign as they're strategically positioned in their workplace or in their union. I think what we saw is Bernie got the most union endorsements from local unions, from uh, unions that either broke away from their national or, you know, a, a lot of a lot of national unions had kind of agreements that like locals are allowed to do whatever they want this time and we'll make a national endorsement later on. I think that just like in kind of the militancy question, like it would be too simple to say the rank and file wanted Bernie and the leadership quashed it. I, I think, you know, it's a problem of articulating to the membership what is what does it mean to do politics? How should our union act politically? I think trying to understand political action of the unions is, I mean, it's a really big question, but the easiest shorthand is like the unions are politically a part of the Democratic Party in terms of how they engage. It's not to say that unions don't endorse Republicans, union members aren't, uh, you know, independent or Republicans or they love the Democratic Party or anything like that. But if you're trying to understand, you know, why do unions not do the most obviously pro-union political move, whatever it might be? be in a certain juncture, especially, you know, with Bernie's clearly the candidate that the members were more excited about in terms of like who's donating, who's volunteering. It's also the candidate who's putting forward the most pro-union things. We sent, you know, thousands of supporters out to picket lines uh, and hundreds of events at, at unions requests or, you know, just to, to because we knew that uh, Bernie supporters wanted to stand with labor. And the only way to really make sense of it is that unions can't really act independently. They have to have a relationship to the party as a whole. So it's kind of even clearer on like the state level. So why do unions not endorse pro-worker progressive candidates, even if it would be better for that person to occupy a given state legislative seat versus, you know, a corporate Democrat? And the, the, there's always local reasons, you know, nuance and things like that personality. There's all, all kinds of things that go into it. But one big thing is the unions don't have a relationship to legislative seats or legislative action itself. They have a relationship to the only party in town that they can deal with. And what's unique about this in the U.S. is that other countries have labor parties. And this is the fundamental thing is like these unions are, even if they're party leaders or superdelegates, you know, union presidents will often be superdelegates to the Democratic National Convention and things like that. They're in the party with the people they're bargaining with across, you know, the table. So it's their interests up against the interests of the bosses. And the only way to respond to that is to jockey for position within the party and hope that the state managers and the party leaders will have some sympathy towards your cause because, you know, or maybe you can try to match some of the people power as the corporate money. But that's kind of uh, a starting point to understand you know, it's very mind-boggling to a lot of rank-and-file union members that I've organized with of, why is my union not endorsing Bernie? This was like a conversation I had hundreds of times on the campaign. And to understand it, you just, you, you have to see it as a bigger question of um, what are unions' political options? Um, and they're just foreclosed into the Democratic Party. But what does it reveal then about those unions that did endorse Bernie about what sort of alternative path could be pursued. 
Right. I mean, it, it, it's clear that there are unions that are willing to take political risks for political, not even just principles, but just to, to say, we think we might be able to push through the inertia of the party. So, you know, there was three national unions, the UE, uh, the National Nurses Union, and uh, the American Postal Workers Union. Uh, this year, and there was six or seven national unions in 2016 that endorsed there exists a labor left out there that is just totally incoherent and has no opportunities for articulation. And I think what things like, uh, you know, the Bernie candidacy, to some extent, social movements as well, you know, what relationships they, these different unions have had to Black Lives Matter, the strike for Black Lives last summer, which was, you know, a mass demonstration. There's there's occasional opportunities, but there's far too few occasions for unions that are willing to fight or distinguish themselves or speak out against the status quo of union political action or, or unionism in general in this country. And part of what the left's role is, is to provide more opportunities to cohere that with the union movement as it exists. Today, Sarah Nelson, the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, is widely considered to be the left or progressive pick, succeed Richard Trumka as AFL-CIO president. Who is Nelson and what could she do in that position? Sarah Nelson is uh, the leader of the Flight Attendants Union, which is, uh, you know, one big chunk of CWA. Uh, She became kind of mainstream famous, in my opinion, during the federal shutdown uh, a couple years back when she said we needed to move towards something like a general strike or that flight attendants or other workers needed to take workplace action to end the shutdown. Um, And since then and before then, you know, she's been a prominent voice that's been, you know, somewhat critical of of the kind of status quo or the or the the way that things are moving, especially, you know, one one big fight that Sarah Nelson took on that I think hasn't had enough focus is she was the one union leader who is really pushing hard for a relief deal in the, you know, at the end of 2020, saying we need to, you know, cut a deal now, uh, save the airline industry and also save all these other industries, even if it's not the the um, the Heroes Act, which was kind of the mainstream package that the AFL was pushing for. And I think people outside the labor movement don't see this as much of a kind of like sticking your neck out. But to me, Sarah Nelson is is really interesting because she's someone who's willing to act independently. Um, You know, like I said, the only union to really be pushing for a relief bill outside of this Heroes Act framework and and the only person to talk about strike action in the federal shutdown. And she's also willing to talk about militancy. Um, Again, you know, every time Sarah Nelson (laughs) speaks, she says, we need to reclaim the strike, rebuild the strike, use the strike. And she comes from a union that, you know, has some experience actually doing it. What it would mean if she was, you know, if she ran for AFL-CIO president and if she won, the AFL is this interesting, you know, very federated, in some ways it, you know, matches our, our, our U.S. system of politics where it's like, you know, everyone has their own fiefdoms and they're allowed to do whatever they want. But it would have a really strong force of this kind of political articulation. I, I know we talked about like John Sweeney and the effect that he had, and I think the biggest thing, if you read accounts during the 90s of what it meant for John Sweeney to challenge in the first contested AFL election of, of 
of the Federation's history was the idea that we're pushing for against the status quo, that things aren't going well, that we need something to change. So I think what's exciting to me about Sarah Nelson's potential run is what it could mean as a, it's very much like the Bernie effect or the Justice Democrats effect. What can these people do in the process of challenging the status quo of the labor movement, which again, very few people uh, with credibility are doing, you know, just people like us at the sidelines, you know, poking at it. But I think if Sarah Nelson were to mount a credible run, this could be like, you know, a Bernie 2016. I don't know if she could win. I don't know if she could like take the power of the Federation and make it into a meaningful, uh, you know, have meaningful results with it. But I do know that it would cohere, you know, this kind of section of the labor movement that does want to act politically independently to some extent, that does want to revive the strike. And there really is a base for this kind of labor politics. It just is so hidden beneath, first of all, the crushing situation for U.S. unions, but also just the the very hidden or, or you know, underarticulated or, or just kind of neglected political struggles in the unions that people have just abandoned this as a site of kind of contestation. And I think to me, that's what's really exciting about Sarah Nelson is the idea that we could fight for the soul of the labor movement and what that would mean for rank and file and local leaders and national leaders who are watching that closely. I mean, it does speak to something you brought up, Dan, about this collective action problem um, when it comes to organized labor leaders kind of taking risks in any sense. If you have someone like Sarah Nelson at the head who's willing to sort of be the first mover um, that certainly opens space for a more cohered left wing of labor um, to actually sort of act in concert. Well, on that note, Alex Press and Jonah Furman, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Alex Press is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine whose work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Nation, and Book Forum, among other places. Jonah Furman is a labor movement organizer who has worked with Labor Notes, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, and served as labor organizer for Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's 2020 campaigns. You can subscribe to his very good labor newsletter at whogetsthebird.substack.com, which I will link to in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that things are only settled by the continuous struggle between capital and labor, the capitalist constantly tending to reduce wages to their physical minimum and to extend the working day to its physical maximum, while the working man constantly presses in the opposite direction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, same on Facebook. Please also find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or a similar platform, you can also please do consider leaving us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends, family, strangers 
about the show, why you listen to it, why they should listen to it, too. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.